there's something to be said for following up Papers, Please with a shitty game, because that will sort of reset expectations a little bit, you know, um, which would probably help. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you're listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, Adam Saltzman is talking to Lucas Pope, an independent game developer. Lucas is best known for Papers, Please, and is currently working on Return of the Obra Dinn. Okay, uh, my name is Lucas Pope, and uh, I released uh, a game called Papers, Please, Three years ago, I think now. Um, and before that, I worked at uh, Naughty Dog. I worked on Uncharted One and Two. And before that, I had um, I worked at a Serious Games Company. And before that, I had my own company that I started with a couple friends. We worked on independent games for ten years before that, with pretty limited success. And in general, I, I kind of always work on little side projects and little games. But Papers Please was the kind of breakout game for me. Uh, and now I'm working on, not a follow-up, but my next game after Papers, Please, which is a first-person mystery game, which is completely different than Papers, Please. So you've gone from indie games to AAA and then back to indie. Um, yeah, the indie game before AAA was before you could really do... It's not the same indie that we have now, I guess. Uh, mm. Back then you needed you still needed to ship physical copies of games, so there was no digital distribution to to sort of remove all the upfront costs. So in the, even though we were a small studio, we still needed to work with big publishers in order to get our games actually distributed. Oh, well, like what genres or are you allowed to say, do you want to say what games they were or? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. So it was, we struggled with the, the way the team came together is we made a quake mod. This was in 98, I think mm. 1998. We made a quake mod that uh, replaced everything. A total conversion is called um, TCs and yeah, TCs and the game's called Malice, and it was the first commercial total conversion. It was kind of a weird time because it wasn't totally clear that you could sell mods for Quake, but this company saw our mod, said, you know, we can publish it for you. Hmm. They did. They said put put it in boxes and put it in stores. It was really cool. It was a great experience, and we said, okay, let's let's quit our our uh, college careers here and just start a company together and, and do this full time. And so we did that, and we our next our big game after the total conversion was going to be this really sprawling third-person over-the-shoulder action adventure game, which was way outside any scope we could possibly handle. <laughs> uh, and that didn't work out. I mean, we 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 spent maybe a year and a half on that, couldn't get any real solid interest from publishers. Oh wow! Which you needed back then. You couldn't just go out on your own and try something. You could. There was no Kickstarter. There was no anything basically. So you just you have to shop. It was a dark time, let me tell you. You had to, you had to like find an agent or somebody who could get you in touch with people at the publishers that were interested in third-party games, and most of them weren't because they had their own internal studios working on the games. Yeah. And you had to pitch it to somebody. You had to fly out and pitch it in front of them. You bring your lug, your PC with you, and set it up. And the people in the meeting are bored, and you're not focused. You're too young anyways. They don't like you or... They have a similar game coming out, and the only reason they want to see what you've got is to see, you know, what kind of 
overlap there's going to be there. So they don't they don't really want to pick up your game. They just kind of want to scope you out. Oh, wow. So that sort of fizzled out. That game was called Hab 12, and that fizzled out. Um, but we were still four guys, um, four or five guys working together, and we had you know, the, the means and the time and the interest in making something else. But we didn't really know what to do. And this is a time when, I don't know if you remember, but uh, Deer Hunter was this incredible, explosive success yeah. in the late 90s. And particularly through Walmart. Walmart turned out to be this major, the number one distributor of PC games in America for the, the end of the 1900s, basically, which is bizarre. <laughs> but it sort of opened up this cool market of non-traditional games like deer hunting, or uh, in our case, we decided to make a game where you repair cars. It was called Gearhead Garage. And my dad is a hobby mechanic, and I grew up, you know, rebuilding engines and, and bondoing fender panels and things like that. So I had always been sort of interested in, in mechanics and working on cars, and I thought, why don't we, here's a game about deer hunting. I don't, I know, I have friends, because I live in Virginia. I have friends who love deer hunting, but I, that's not my thing. I like yeah. to work on cars, so maybe we can put that in a game. And, um, we did, and the, the key for me, it's interesting because this sort of set up a lot of my design philosophy, was that the key was you only repair cars in this game. You can't drive them. And to hmm. find a game where you can't drive a car is really hard. Like, the whole game is about cars, and you can't drive them. You can't even, like, test drive them. You can't take them out onto anything. You only fix them up, and you can put them in your, your car lot or whatever, but you can never drive them. And that hmm. was... A tough sell to the team, but for me, it was the obvious thing that this is to just to sort of focus the game and to make it clear what what I'm what we're offering here. It's a game where you repair cars, and so it, it's really simple. You, a car comes in; it's a 3D model, so that that was kind of a, a good hook at the time because there weren't a lot of 3D games where you can manipulate objects in 3D. So it was a big 3D model of the car, and there would be parts that were broken on it. And you had to take them off and repair them and put them back on. There was a little you know the it was mouse controlled, so you could bolt the bolts on and unbolt them and, and things like that. And you could mix and match parts. There were custom parts. You could swap out things. Uh, and that ended up selling really well, actually. That was that hit the market. Hit, there was a, a market there for it, especially through Walmart. And so that was oh. – we ended up selling that to a company called Head Games, who was a budget publisher that would do Deer Hunter games like that. Um, oh, okay, yeah. And they ended up getting bought by Activision when Activision, at this time, budget games were a big surprise to all the, the big publishers. So mm. what they started doing was they started opening up budget divisions in their company to handle these budget games. Mm. Uh, and Activision created Activision Value, which ended up buying, or I think maybe just completely, they bought head games and renamed them Activision Value, and that was their Activision, that was their budget games uh, label. And these are things that would be like in a cardboard sleeve, like in the checkout lane? Well, or... eventually. They, at Walmart, you could still get a box copy. You could still get, you know, I don't know what size is, but it's a normal size box oh, well. with, yet yeah, a black and white insert for the manual or no manual at all. So huh. it's still pretty, still pretty bare bones, but this is beef. This was like. They would always do a first run of on the shelves in the software section. Oh, okay. And then yeah. it would kind of tear down into something like, yeah, like just in a CD case at the checkout counter. Isn't there like, like I swear, maybe I'm misremembering, but isn't one like the, there's a big game on Steam right now where you never drive a car and all you do is like repair 3D cars? Yeah, that game, if you look at it, uh, it's 
I've never talked to those guys. I don't know them, but it follows the exact model of Gearhead Garage. That Whoa. That's like a and, remake thing or a spiritual something? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they played it when they uh, – the thing is that, that game, I still get emails. People email me and say, I played this game as a kid. It doesn't run on Windows anymore. Can you please release a patch or fix it for Windows <laughs> or make a sequel? You know, We would love a sequel on mobile. Wow. And that, that's kind of what doomed our original indie company is that I, I – even at that time, I didn't want to do a sequel. I hmm. thought, let's try something new and different. Um, and that kind of screwed us with Activision too because we own the IP on that. Through some quirk of of how oh. we signed the contract with some, some guy who wasn't totally clued in on how, how head games works um, or how Activision value works basically gave us – or let the con- sign the contract, which said that we keep the IP for that. Um, wow. And so that's not how that was actually, done back then. Normally, yeah, definitely not. And we got a call after we signed the contract, and after the, the head guy looked over it, he we got a really angry, yelling phone call from this guy, saying that this is not, we don't do this. You know, like how could this happen? Um, and somehow they released the game. I, I think the game was good enough and and pretty much done, and they were just sort of ready to go. So they just they published it. And distributed it. It sold really well. Um, I think Whoa. maybe 150,000 copies, which for, for us back then was just amazing. Yeah. Um, the the unfortunate part is when you're pressing discs and you're making physical goods to sell, the royalty return on that is terrible. Oh, uh, right, right. So we get you know a couple pennies or something per copy sold. Um, it wasn't that bad, but it wasn't great. Um, and yeah. Because we own the IP, and we we sort of didn't want to do a sequel, but if Activision had come to us and said, "We want a sequel. You know, let's do it. We'll put you know three hundred thousand dollars into this and and invest, and let's do it." We might have done it, but because we own the IP, they didn't really want to follow up that strongly. Um, mm. Even though they had first round reviews and all this other stuff, just because it wasn't their IP, you know, they have a lot of stuff they can invest their money in that they actually own. So yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I, I didn't want to, I wanted to try something new. Um, I, I just, it's kind of like a disease of mine. I don't really don't want to work on the same sort of sequels. I don't want to work on the same kind of game one after another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after that, we, we kind of positioned ourselves as a budget developer, which is a really bad place to be, actually, especially at the time, because you're competing with companies that have way less overhead than you Eastern European companies, mostly back then. So some Polish company would be able to just provide services to Activision that were way below what we could, we could handle. Um, mm, right. And so we, once we were in that position, we go to Activision, we say, what, what do you guys got? What can we do? And they say, well, there's a wakeboarding game and you, know, you can make a wakeboarding game, which I don't know if we actually prototyped that or what, but eventually um, we decided that we were going to do a firefighting game next on our own. Uh, and we did the firefighting game and Activision owned the IP and they were able to get a license for it. Actually, I should say with Gearhead Garage as well, um, budget with budget games at the time, it was absolutely critical that you have a license. There was no possible way to release a budget game without a license. And so when we came to them with this car repair game, um, we, we were in Virginia, so I was not a redneck, but I, Almost, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much in there, because um, I, I was born in California, but I moved to Virginia, and, and so I, all my friends are rednecks, and so I, I knew that there were licenses available, and um, at the time, Head Games as well was in, I don't even know, some some Midwestern 
state, I can't remember, but they also were kind of rednecks. So they sort of knew the car industry, and they, mm-hmm. they, um, they realized that Snap-on Tools, I don't know if you know what Snap-on Tools is, but it's a company that, serve, that offers tools to garages, to car repair garages oh, or whatever. Oh, sure, yeah, and they, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, so Snap-on Tools was, at the time, a well-known brand within the sphere of people who like to repair cars, basically. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were able to get the Snap-on Tools license. And what's funny is, when you get a license, part of the, the wheeling and dealing for something like that is you go to Snap-on Tools and you say, we got this game that would be perfect for to have your license on it, first off. It can help your brand. And second off, you guys can sell copies from your truck. You know, you sell wrenches, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's, in retrospect, it's kind of a dumb idea, but it's it's the kind of thing where you gotta you got to set that sort of thing up to get the sale, you know? And, and I think that's kind of what happened. Huh. And so the original game was released as Snap-on Tools Gearhead Garage. So we, we own the name Gearhead Garage, we own the IP, and then they were able to get the license attached to that, which is pretty cool. Wow. So when it came time for the firefighting game, we had sort of produced a prototype and we had a, a kind of fun, the first-person action game, basically, where you go into, in first person, you go into a burning building and you rescue people. Total budget all the way, like through and through budget game. Um, but we show it to Activision and they say, this is kind of cool. Um Let's see if we can get a license for it. And they went to FDNY, I think. Mm-hmm. Or, no, I'm getting my timeline wrong here. Actually, the first game we released, they didn't put a license on it. It didn't sell that well. Uh, and then what happened is 9-11 happened. And Activision, we were done with it. Like, we, we this was before, we released the firefighting, first firefighting game in 2000 or something like that. And it did okay, not great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 9-11 happened, and Activision called us and said, we want a sequel, and we want to license it through FDNY. And that's a weird call to get, let me tell you, because uh, it's uh, it feels exploitative. I don't know if that's the word, but it feels like exploitation. That's um, the word. Which, yeah, none of us were interested in, honestly. But these are good salesmen, and they pitched it, and they said that, you know, you we're all going to make money from this and the FDNY is going to make money from this too. They're going to get a huge chunk of whatever money this game makes. Hmm. You know, you, you guys have already, this is them talking, you've already got this model you've already got the original game. You know, we just need some new levels, just like bang it up a bit, put the license in there and we can release it and we can get some money to these guys. Some send some proceeds to the, the FDNY and the, mm-hmm. the firefighter department in New York, by the way. Um, FDNY. Yeah. And uh, we did it. We made the game. We released it. It sold a lot more than the first game. Um, and we didn't, we made almost no money off of it. So, you know, I don't, I don't hold the books. I don't know what actually happened there, but mm. I hope that uh, that benefited them in some way. <laughs> but at that point, we're kind of like, we sort of see what's going on here as far as our position as a budget developer and not super happy with it, but also. You know, you don't when you're just doing what you're doing. It's really hard to know what you got to change to improve things. And what ended up happening is basically everybody left the company. Yes, and you guys have been like um, together for six years or me. ten years or something. Yeah, it was pretty long. Well, I think we spent four years working together. And then the real problem is that two of the guys were foreigners. One guy was Australian, one guy was uh, Belgian. So to work in the U.S. It's pretty pretty tough actually for mm. um, for foreigners. Um, even back then, it was hard. It's harder now, but it was hard back then, especially for a small company that can't necessarily sponsor the right kind of visa. So, 
things sort of, things sort of fell apart and everyone kind of went their separate ways. And I, I stayed, this company is called Ratloop, this game developer. I stayed at Ratloop for a couple years, actually, after that, trying to get a Game Boy Advance version of Gearhead Garage off the ground. So we had a 3D engine on the Game Boy Advance, and I added this sort of adventure mode to it. So it was more than just repairing cars. You had to sort of travel around this overworld map. And I had races, too. You could finally drive the car. It, was a, mm. it wasn't a good game. Uh, it wasn't a good game, and the timing was awful. The Game Boy Advance was was pretty much done. It, the, the people were sort of looking forward to the DS at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, the DS wasn't out yet, but everyone knew it was coming out, and they weren't super interested in 3D games for the Game Boy Advance, even though technically it was way beyond what you'd normally see on the Game Boy Advance. Uh, so that kind of slowly... I don't know if you want this much detail, but you're getting it. Um, so that yeah, kind of slowly petered out. Uh, and uh, at that point, I said, you know what? This is not fucking working. I, this is, there's no work in this town beyond what, what, I'm, what we're generating ourselves. This is Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. There's no work in this town, so I'm going to go somewhere. I'm going to leave the company. I'm going to go somewhere where I can actually get some money for working. <laughs> uh, and that's when I moved to L.A. And I had, I had family in L.A., so it, was, it wasn't like crazy blow your mind kind of move it was just moving from the eating from the east right coast to the left coast and staying with family and being closer to some family out there um so Mm -hmm. i got a job at a serious games company that was i won't say triple a but they had you know a staff of 30 people and they had a big project they were working on it was a really good project and that's i have a lot of good memories of working there um but eventually that project ended and i was kind of looking for something new and that's when I landed at Naughty Dog. And the only reason I got a job there, because Naughty Dog is the real deal, the serious business about making games. And I would, my resume didn't look that good at that time, honestly. You know, when you make games for yourself, especially back then, there was no cachet at all in, in making games with a small team uh, unless you had a huge success, and we didn't. So, Yeah, uh, I remember... I remember trying to find work in the like in 2003ish and feeling like everything felt like a catch 22. Yeah, do like, you have experience? What's your experience? Which which AAA games did you ship? That kind of thing. Yeah. And and also, you know, which what kind of AAA production techniques do you have experience with, which is a big thing and I had none. You know, I didn't I'd never used Perforce or whatever and I didn't know my and I didn't you know, things that I didn't know about that sort of option. But the, the key was that I like user interface design, and I like making cool. And in AAA, that's a rare fucking thing. People do not... <laughs> people in AAA like game code. They want to work on game code. They want to work yeah. gameplay code. One of the ways that you can connect with people and get them excited about a game that uh, maybe isn't a kind of game they've played before is if they can relate to it another way. When you think of a thing and you're excited about it, like, are you parsing it that way? Sort of, in some way. I I sort of try to see what's going on around me in the real world here, where we both are, and and sort of peel it back and see if there's a game mechanic there, a literal game mechanic. Not not a story or a narrative necessarily, but a, just a, a something you can do and have fun doing it. And that's where Papers, Please came from, where I, I just... I saw guys checking my passport, and I thought, okay, that little thing he's doing where he's looking at different screens and checking the information, that looks fun. Uh, and so 
I, yeah, it's not that I'm, I'm not really trying to hook people with the passport checking because I don't think that really hooks anybody. Um, it's more that because I, I sort of decided I'm going to make different games from, from the top, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to make the standard game. That sort of leads into, well, probably you're not going to kill that many people in the games I make, which is the number one thing you do in games today is you kill people. Yeah. So that leaves open uh, or things. You kill people or things. Um, that leaves mm-hmm. open this vast, huge universe of things you can do in games. So there's a lot to choose from. I mean, just just based on what's available for choice, <laughs> not doing a standard game is actually way more wide open than trying to do a standard game. You know, so hmm. just right there, there's a lot more potential for games. Uh, and I'm just kind of picking them from the ether, I guess, when they come up to me. Oberdin is a different beast almost entirely because the entire inspiration for this game was I want to make a one-bit 3D game. That's what I, that was a, like. That was my my sort of guilty pleasure after Papers Please. Is mm. I grew I grew up playing Mac Plus games. I wanted to make a Mac Plus game, um, and the the story and the mechanics sort of all flowed from that um, in a way that was limited by my production. So I a lot of the decisions I made. Because I, I knew it was going to be a, a first-person walk-em-up, and once you make that decision, then you sort of fall into some lines, and I knew what I could and I couldn't do, so uh, that sort of directed a lot of the design of the game. And, I mean, this game has taken me already two, two years and some months, so there's been a lot of bad decisions along the way, obviously, because I don't like to work on games this long. Um, but what in was, general... What was Papers, Please? Roughly. The initial version was nine months, so I hmm. shipped it from nine months when I started, and then I spent another four months on the localization of it, and then I made an iPad version of it after that. Hmm. So altogether, maybe a year, mm-hmm. but it released initially after nine months. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I generally prefer the sort of smaller, more experimental games, um, and I don't know. I It's not... I don't find it scary. I just I find it... Inspirational, I guess. For me, I, like I said, I'm an engineer. Maybe this was cut out. <laughs> Didn't get this in the recording, but I, I, I'm mostly an engineer, so I really like to solve problems. And when you work in a in a sort of style of game that's not super popular or not hasn't been made a bunch of times, you're solving way more problems than, or more interesting problems, at least to me, than if you were making another Final Fantasy or another shooter game. The other thing that seems like sort of a thread is like a gradually increasing amount of narrative in the projects where I feel like the some of the budget game work uh, was very much about a, uh, a place or a mechanic and then Papers, Please seems like at its core it has like, you know, there's a spot the difference mechanic, but the I feel like the, the richness of the experience comes very much from uh, the narrative and the stories and the the sense of relatable fictional place was that did that feel like comfortable to throw that in the mix or has that been something you've been interested in for a long time and it just hasn't fit in scope wise or I no I wouldn't say I was interested actually I I've never before actually the key for me was this game called Republic of Times which I made as practice for Ludum Dare my first Ludum Dare I wanted to practice for it it's a two day game development competition. So you have 48 hours to make a game. Mm. And I thought uh, I should practice that because I've never made a game in 48 hours and I need to find the tools. It's a common thing. You've got to find your tool set, find out your sort of 
pipeline to make a game that fast, you need to have things kind of set up in advance. Mm. So I did a practice game for that called Republic of Times, which is a again a weird game where you are an editor for a newspaper and you place articles on the paper um, for a totalitarian state, based sort of dictatorship, and you need to place the right articles to keep your circulation up and to not anger the government, mm. whatever. But that was a very that started out as okay. Let's just make a bunch of random articles. Uh, article headings with that that boost and and lower stats for your readership and your loyalty and whatever. Oh, I was like a and sim sort of. So sort of, yeah. You get this feed of news articles that come in, and you need to take an article and put it on the paper. And your paper mm-hmm. can only fit, say, like eight articles, but you get throughout the day you'll get twenty different articles. So you got to mm-hmm, pick mm-hmm. and choose which ones. And the so- there are different sizes on the paper too. So a big article will have a better response. So you can take any article and put it in any slot. And so you want to highlight the articles hmm. that that say that the, co- the country is doing well and the military is strong, and you want to not include the articles that say that the production is down in the north or something like that. So it's a very simple mechanic and could be filled out with just sort of writing 100 different articles with different stat numbers. But mm-hmm. within while I was making that, I realized that there's a, I can make a whole game here. A lot of times with Ludendari, you just want to finish something. And it's really rare that you can actually make a complete start-to-finish game. But at some point in those two days, I realized I can just nuance these articles a little bit and sort of string them along in a way that makes an interesting story. So in the middle, your news feed gets hijacked by the rebels, and they start asking you to print different articles. And mm. sort of, and your family uh, is has actually been quote-unquote, in protective custody of the government so that you don't mess up, basically. If you do anything wrong, then your family gets killed. So there's some motivation there. A lot of that stuff fed directly in the papers, please, where I I had sort of procedural generation for most of the immigrants, but there was a thread, there were several, many threads of narrative that sort of twisted through it. And the thing that I like about this setup is that you work out the core mechanics first, and you make the game semi-fun with just the core mechanics. You make the, the thing the player is doing from moment to moment, you, you sort of make that sure that's fun. And this is before you've blown your energy on a story or even thought about a story. Uh, and b- before you've invested a lot into the, the whole game as a structure, you're making sure the core mechanic is fun. And then you don't bury that core mechanic in the, in the, the corner of the game and and sort of fluff it up with uh, cutscenes or, or lots of dialogue or text or whatever. You you build your story using that core mechanic and that worked really well for Republic times, even though it was on a very small scale. And then I did the same thing for papers, please. So I had a core mechanic before I ever thought about, well, not ever, but before I had the core mechanic sort of set before I started building the narrative using the core mechanic and that would feed back in too. So I would, some thing that you're doing in the game would suggest uh, an incident or an encounter with an immigrant, um, and then maybe I would think I would watch a Bourne movie and think, you know, it'd be cool if the game had this story feature. Like there's some character that did this. Okay, that means in order to sort of make that work in the game, I need a mechanic where you search people and when they're naked or something like that. Like mm-hmm. it would always sort of tie into each other. But the important thing was like building the story based on only the tools you have in the core of what the player is doing while he's playing your game. So it doesn't cut away to a cutscene. It doesn't. Um, make you read lots of notes that you find lying around. Um, in, in a way, mm-hmm. Oberdin is building on that, where I have sort of a core mechanic and the narrative is built only out of what I can do with that with that mechanic. 
Is there like a cutting room floor somewhere where like there's like the five things that you really really wanted to do, but there was just no way? They're stressing the mechanics too much. Like they're pushing it too far. Like it can't yeah. roll in. So I did I did a, um, a devlog on TigSource for Papers Please, and there's a lot of that. The one thing I'll say is there's nothing I really wanted. I like there's I. I feel lucky because I can always kind of keep my eyes on the prize. And I think this is, um, this is a result of working at Naughty Dog where they could cut anything. They, they could have a team of artists working on the level for three months, six months. And then they get to the, near the end, they realize it doesn't fit in the game or we can't finish it to the right spec that we need. So just cut the whole thing. And I inherited that from working there. So I have no mm. attachment, no strong mm. attachment to anything that gets cut really. Um, because I feel like, the things that are really important to me were defined sort of in the beginning or massaged all along the way. The little things that, that kind of pop in that would make the game cool, I I don't really care about those that much. Um, but Papers, Please has a lot of those. You know, uh, you can confiscate passports in the game, but there was a feature where you could pass, confiscate photos as well because I wanted, at the time, there was this thing in the news where the security workers would be trading the naked pictures of people that they were taking at the airport on the machines. Mm. So I wanted something like that in there. Or uh, originally the fingerprint system was way different, had this big like mechanical interface or this big uh, sort of TV screen interface where you would see their hand press against the screen and you, you would capture, manually capture their fingerprints. Like there was, mm. yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that, but nothing, nothing I miss. You know, it was all, I feel like I, I, everything that was cut was, was the right decision. Where was the jump from doing Republia Times to doing a game that was, I guess, similar in some ways? Like, if you were going to string together, sort of, like, was Republia like, was Papers, Please, like, sort of forming gradually? And you were like, okay, I'm going to do this newspaper thing, and we're going to suss out no, not bits at all. of it? Or... I, I, no, so I'd done the newspaper game. That was my practice for Ludumdare. And then for Ludumdare, I did this game called Six Degrees of Sabotage, which... Uh, was different, again, a game about observation, uh, but still a touch of the same kind of themes of sort of rebellion or um, kind of 80s Cold War vibe where you've got a Cold War going on. Uh, and so that sort of defined my headspace for what I'm thinking about media in general. And then for Papers, Please, I I don't know. I, the idea had been kind of simmering for a while just because I, I had, in the last couple of years before Papers, Please, I had traveled a lot in Southeast Asia, just kind of flying around, doing whatever. Hmm. Well, not doing whatever, but yeah, visiting friends or working and stuff. So I had, in my mind was the idea that checking passports could be a game mechanic. Um, and it, it wasn't until... I guess after that Ludumdare stuff, I kind of sat down and said, let me just give it a shot. Let me prototype something really quickly because Ludumdare is great. I love it because it sort of gets you thinking, sets you up for quick prototypes. And what's really great about Ludumdare is if you can finish it in two days, you can forget about it after that. It's gone. So you don't, a lot of the trouble with making games is they're kind of like baggage you carry with you for a long time while you're working on them to mm -hmm. to sort of tweak them and polish them and, and you're always thinking about them but for Lunadara it's one weekend you're done um, so that kind of got me in the mindset of just quickly prototype kick something out so it wasn't like Papers, Please was going to be my next big fucking hit that's going to win all the awards it was like let me just sit down and prototype this guilty pleasure of a game that I'm pretty sure no one else is going to be that interested in basically 
Um, just the same way I'd done for Republic Times and for Six Degrees of Sabotage, I just kind of sat down in Flash and started like banging some stuff out. Or Hex, actually, I was using Hex. And so it just grew from there. And the fact that I shipped it in nine, I mean, I was planning to spend six months to make that game. Uh, and I added an extra three sort of when things weren't coming together and when people had some expectations about <laughs> how, how the game would, would be. I thought, okay, I better try to match at least some of those expectations. So I added three months. So in the end, nine months, which is still pretty fast, but not as fast as I originally intended it to be. Um, my original plan was to make Papers, Please as a short six-month game and then get a job somewhere because I wasn't working at the time. And uh, my wife had just given birth to our first son, so there's a little bit of financial pressure there. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, like, stop making these stupid games. And actually, I showed Papers, Please to my wife. She's a game developer, too. We met at uh, at a game company that we worked together. Mm. I showed it to her, and she said, whatever, this is weird, um, but if you like it, I mean, it's kind of fun, you know, but it's not whatever. Tell you what, you finish this game and then get a real job. So that was my sort of plan. It's like, I'll finish this game, put it sort of behind me, and then go back to AAA or something. Um, and it just didn't work out that way, but that was kind of my thinking. And that's sort of how I sit down for every game is let me just kick something out and we'll see what happens. Let me prototype it. Uh, it's really hard for me to commit to anything as a like, sort of long-term project, period. But then also, before I know that the core is going to be any good, if there's any potential for a whole interesting game out of it. And that's sort of my excuse for Oberden is that I sat down and I felt like the core visuals were good. And I kind of didn't have the core mechanics settled for a while. And so, but I was really happy with the visuals, so I kept sort of churning on it and churning on it and finally figured out the core mechanics. But you know, the, the procedure was a little different from, from what I'm good at. So there's some, definitely some worry there. I mean, this is something that we struggle with as a studio or a team or as a solo designer or anything like this jump from two day project to two week project to like, you know, one year long project. Are there, I don't know, like, is there something that you're kind of like looking for when you're messing around with a prototype and thinking like, oh, this might be yeah, well, for Papers, Please, it was a little different because I I personally enjoyed the mechanic, the core mechanic of just spotting differences. Mm-hmm. So I it was kind of like, for, I kind of made that game for me at the beginning, and then when it got a good response, then obviously, you know, financially, I felt like, okay, it's worth finishing it. But, yeah, I think a key for me personally is when I start working on a game to sort of decide, okay, what's it worth for me to work on this game is... I have to think objectively, if somebody sees this game just on a news issue or a screenshot or on some news page they check or on the Steam list somewhere, what's going to grab their attention? What's going to attract them about this game? And I I really strongly believe that a game needs to be instantly recognizable and instantly interesting to at least some people. So there should be no explanation of why this game is good. You should be able to see it or hear the title or hear the concept and think, I want that game. And that's a pretty easy metric when you're hmm. starting out. You don't you don't need any design or anything for that. You just need the idea and sort of the imagery and, and some other stuff. And so anything I work on, I try to get that down first before spending any, almost any time at all. So I, I have, you know, when I'm, I've worked on this game for two years now, and I worked on Papers, Please before for a year or whatever, I'm always collecting ideas for games and putting them in a little notes entry on my iPhone. And so... Any of those that kind of 
I keep thinking about or that sort of went out while I'm working on a game. When I finish a game and I'm looking for something new, whichever one mm-hmm. I've been sort of obsessing about or thinking about the most is the one I'm going to try first. And there's no consideration for how long it will take me, really. Just hopefully not too long. But it's more about what's just taking up my headspace, you know, because my assumption is that will work for other people, too. When they hear about this concept or when they hear this title, they'll also think that it's interesting and want to check it out without knowing anything beyond that, without playing or seeing a demo or anything. Yeah, I know sometimes when we're using this internal metric of like, oh, I don't know... I don't know what the implications of this idea are. I don't know the answers to all the questions. I should go try to solve some of them because this is weird and interesting. I sometimes, like, I guess I'm hoping that potential players would have the same response. Yeah. That maybe, like, in some ways part of the appeal of, like, can you make a whole game out of checking passports that players might actually not... That question is, yeah. Yeah, but it's there somehow. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like there's space for a small, uh, small-ish, more experimental, singular concept type thing? I guess uh, this is on our minds a lot right now. Another game under our umbrella, Night in the Woods, and the new game from Young Horses and Below from Cappy are all games that have been in development for over two years and that have a lot of um, 3D or very high-fidelity output and are trying to kind of squish together gameplay or things that are uh doing something new and it's they feel like uh maybe too big or that doing something smaller that has a a tighter focus feels risky as a commercial thing i guess i don't know if you have a sense of that or or well my feeling personally because i have i've fallen in the same trap is the simple Small stuff, I think, is always better, but it's a lot harder to do. If you know, Papers Please, I would say, was inspired. I had a great, I had an idea that I thought was strong. Mm-hmm. I personally enjoyed it. The mechanic worked well. The production was great. The sort of art style was all true. Everything worked out kind of great for that game. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to get that every time. And one of the things that happened with Overdin is I didn't get that right away, so I just started adding shit, or I just started. Not adding, but maybe just expanding what was there or slowly realizing that my original idea was way too much work and I needed to scale it back. And even then, it's still too much work. And I, just, I think it's just hard to do that simple, focused, core idea to do it right. And I'm not built to sort of – or I should say the way I'm built to solve that problem is by just keep pounding on it man just fucking keep hitting it with a hammer and it will eventually be in the shape i want it to be and i think that happens with a lot of studios mm-hmm. um and also you know for me there's some pressure to follow up with papers please so it's a lot harder to i'm a lot more critical of what i'm doing uh, than i would be normally with papers please, i can give a shit just whatever just fucking finish this game get it out there like cut 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 who cares you know, but now I'm worried that well, everyone's going to compare this to Papers Please, and it's not as good. So fuck, what am I going to do? I got to keep working. I got to make it as good. And I think that happens a lot. You know, Cappy has something to follow up on. You guys have something to follow up. It's like it's always some pressure that hmm. what you're doing is not is not as good as what you did before, maybe. But also the way to fix that is not to just finish what you got and move on to the next thing, because you, maybe you'll get that black mark on your record. The thing is to the solution is to make what you've got now good you know which or to make it great as good as the first one which is i think a flaw in in the whole solution which i'm going through myself i think you need to just fucking cut off and and start over try again because 
the sort of the, the initial core, the initial seed is where is is so important. Like for papers, please, once I had the idea and sort of the, the vibe and the feel of the game, that like carried me through everything. You know, there was no point where there, there was no critical point where I thought, fuck, this game is not going to work at all. It was it was always kind of like the beginning was so strong that I felt the value, I felt sort of the, the usefulness of finishing, the value of finishing the game. And, you know, mm-hmm. when you lose that sort of initial push, I think it's, it, things get hard because you're, you're trying to solve, you're trying to add something that wasn't there in the beginning. And it's just a lot easier from production, from a production mm-hmm. standpoint, especially, I guess, primarily from a production standpoint, it's a lot easier to start strong, start with a strong idea than it is to inject that later. Now I'm curious if, if, if Papers, Please was a follow-up to something and you felt stressed, like, you know, oh, it's got to be, my previous thing was really great, I've got this passport thing, I've got to, you know, make it as good as I can. Did you, was there a survey recently where you were, did, somebody was doing a survey about the uh, the art style of the characters in Papers, Please? Yeah, a student contacted me and said he'd like to to mock up some images of different, of better Better, more <laughs> right. high, high fidelity art styles for the characters and papers, please, and you'd see what people's reactions were. And yeah, I mean, I when I was working on papers, please, I experimented with this sort of higher res look. And like I said, I did add three months because people had some expectations for that game, but I still got to the point where I could just fucking release it. You know, like I got nothing riding on this. I just need to finish this up and get a real job. So let's just get it out and get it done. And so, I, you know, I don't have that now. I don't have – what I have now is I have kids. So there's less <laughs> sort of laser-like focus on my games. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is, in the end, is – I'm not going to say it slowed me down, but it's given me less pressure on the game, which is good in a lot of ways for me. Hmm. Um, bad for anybody who's waiting for my next game, but good for me um, mentally. So – yeah, I don't know. And there's something to be said for following up Papers, Please with a shitty game, because that will sort of reset expectations a little bit, you know, um, which would probably help. But Oberdin is so different from Papers, Please that even if it sucks, people will say, well, he just she should make another game like Papers, Please, you know, like stop dicking around with that fucking first person bullshit and do something <laughs> that we like that he can make that we like, you know? So yeah, get back in that solid paperwork genre that we all love. Yeah, exactly. So that he's known for. And so, you know, that we need some bureaucracy in his games. So I don't think that even if Overdim sucks, it's not going to give me that sort of reset that I kind of would like. Um, but hopefully the game doesn't suck, you know, and then uh, it's not a problem either way. <laughs> it's part of the pressure you feel like uh, this drive to make a different thing. And if you've been producing work, in you know car repair firefighting uh border control that if you do that even somehow that which was obscure and kind of on the outside is getting too familiar or is uh, it absurd i don't know like if if i had to blame if i had to explain Oberdin, it's it's more that i just wanted you know a lot, a lot of the games i make are products of my childhood honestly so mm-hmm. papers please is sort of mired in the Cold War aesthetic and the sort of Cold War themes, a lot of it. I mean, it's a lot of it's current, but also a lot of it is, is Cold War stuff that we watched when we were kids. Mm-hmm. And so Oberdin is kind of 
key into the, some of the fantasy stuff that I like when I was a kid. Some of the historical British fantasy things, basically, which is fucking weird when I say it, but it, it's sort of just another thing that I'm kind of interested in and think would make a cool story. But game design-wise, it's it's still very similar to what I've done before, where it's a very clear central core mechanic that you're mm. you're sort of following. Um, and and for me, it's I like it because it's okay. How do I how do I take a walk them up, which is traditionally these four things or whatever, and sort of apply my design methodology to it. So that it's not those four things at all. It's something else. But already, you know, I'm making a walk them up first person game. So it's already a little bit risky for me because I'm competing with lots of other games now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, to me, the, the look was good enough to keep going. And also the central fantastical elements were to me interesting enough that, mm-hmm. uh, I, I figured it was worth finishing, but it's still, you know, it's a risky thing for me because I'm leaning on the story and the visuals in a way that I normally don't. I normally lean on the core mechanics more. Hmm. I thought this was a really clever question when I started doing this series and are contributing to this. And I feel like for a lot of the people I've ended up talking to, it's sort of an absurd question because it applies to so many things that they do in their work. But it is, it's sometimes it's a good design practice to think about, um, you know, places where there is a, a set way of doing, there's a rule that is followed. There's a way of doing a thing, but for your project, for the thing that you were building, um, you had to, you had to break that rule. It had to be different because doing it the normal way, was going to make your thing worse. Uh, That's not even a question. No, it's a terrible meandering. Um, well, uh, hold on. I, I can put a few words on that anyways, <laughs> uh, in any case. So it's not so much that I run into that. It's that I'm looking for that. I'm always looking for this is how it's done. Let's flip the fucking script on this. And what if you can't do that? So just as like a totally crazy example, what if you've mm-hmm. got a shooter where the every gun is broken? Like you can't no, – they don't fire. None of the guns fire. So – that's to me. That's a really inspirational way to design games because you, hmm. you when you think about things differently, you sort of like it. Sort of expands your mind about what's possible, and that's a core element of how I design things. Whenever I run into a problem where there is a solution, okay, just add a crouch button. Well, what if there's no crouch button? You know, what if you can't do what you can always do, or what if doing what you always do is is a mistake? You can do it, but it's a mistake. Um, that's, like I said, a core design sort of guide for me is uh, take what is the obvious solution and just eliminate it from your repertoire. And <laughs> you'll get a lot of cool stuff that way, a lot of innovative, new, interesting things that way. I have like a couple other random questions, but I don't really know how to like roll them into the f- good flow of thoughts there. You, but you couldn't even roll your question into the, the quite roll. No, into not the really. Uh, it was all kind of there already. <laughs> all right, well, let me ask you some questions then. Yep, bring it on. Bring it on. What's Let's do a, it. How the fuck do you manage your time? Uh, <laughs> how are you How are you even running this interview now? I don't understand. How are you going to... Okay, running the interview, fine. Editing the interview, then posting it? I don't, like, I don't understand how you... Cause my day is so full of working and family. Do you have kids? Uh, I have two kids. They're three and a half and okay. five and a half. Yeah. Explain yourself. <laughs> fair fair enough uh it's a it's a disaster uh most of the time do you heavily schedule everything you do i mean because yeah, what, what happens to me is i answer emails like three weeks late and i just 
I'd like put things off because I'm working on something or because my kids got something I need to take care of, you know? Yeah, I got I got pretty obsessive about some things. There's the uh, um there's some like weird Silicon Valley stuff like uh getting things done and zero inboxing and uh It doesn't just make it make you feel guilty all the time or uh, it's not so bad because it lets me get rid of things. Like if, like I can go through my email inbox really quick and go, this is kind of the getting things done model for yeah. email or whatever, but you can go through and go like that, e- that email doesn't matter. I never have to respond to it so I can just delete it. This email I do need to respond to, but I don't have to respond to it until like Thursday. So I'm going to write on my thing. You have to reply to this by Thursday or else you're going to be in trouble. And then I can get rid of it. Doing things that way seems to help. It, like the thing that I struggle with most of the time is 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 just focus more than anything else. Like oh, we have lots of things that we want to do. Like you know, want to spend time with my kids, and I want to like spend time making games, and I want to spend time helping other people make games. Trying to do all those things at once is impossible, um, but it it gets hard to even do them in serial or, or to do any of them ever without the other ones like intruding, like getting good work time where you're a game maker and not a dad, I think is really hard. And I also have a hard time just being a dad instead of part of my brain being in game making mode all the time. Uh, And sometimes that feels positive. Sometimes that feels like, you know, I'm stuck on a thing anyway, being on the computer is stupid and I should just (laughs) go like build blocks and build the train set that goes all the way out around the dining room. And then, um, you know, come back and work on the code when my brain sorted it out for me. Um, that stuff works well. The phase of the project we're in right now is just somebody has to sit in a chair and like press on the keyboard a lot, <laughs> like a lot. Uh, it's a good phase. It's a good phase for a project. Yeah, it's like I don't. Well, I'm not. I'm never stuck. I'm almost never stuck. But I am also looking at a list of things that has like 500 items on it and they all have to be done for the thing to be as good as it kind of deserves to be i guess yeah Um, it's telling us pretty clearly what it wants to be and is the game taking three times as long as it normally would if you were single home alone kind of thing or do you have other people that help out to sort of be working when you're off the clock doing other stuff uh we've got a couple things like i've got um our core design team on the game is actually f- kind of four people instead of the usual one or two, um, which is real weird for me in general. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it took me a long time to find people that I felt like I could trust and work with and that we were on the same wavelength and that the parts of the project where they contribute, they're all much better than me. Uh I'm a little bit multidisciplinary and have done art and code and design and writing on previous projects, but the places where we have people contributing now, um, the places where it's working and where I don't feel like I have to micromanage them so much are the places where they're just way better than me. Yeah, that's that's sort of my imagined solution to this. Because I'm really bad at managing my time, and I don't have that get-it-done mentality at all. I don't... I don't get the satisfaction from checking something off a list like that, mm. which is the core sort of goal for that that's, that management style. Um, so so it, I used to think that, and I don't want to right? disagree with that necessarily no, because maybe that's it, how like, 
Well, like, I, I, I can easily imagine that that's how it works for a lot of people. And for me, like, a lot of our um, organizational practices are about eliminating doubt about what to work on next. So, like, our list, of, our checklist of things to do, like, um, sometimes I like to go look at it because I'm like, wow, I checked off 30 things today. And that just makes me feel, that just, like, works on my shitty game developer guilt or whatever. Uh, that's about all that does. Like, it's not actually satisfaction. It's just like, well, I wanted to get 40 things done, but at least I got 30 and it could be worse. <laughs> like, that's as good as I get out of it. But the thing that I actually value a lot is... Uh, knowing that those are the things that I did today were probably the right things to be working on at this point in the project. Um, And that kind of gets in it like an existential thing because I have kids. My, like, I can't, I'm a much more, uh, what's the word for it? Productive, efficient, whatever. Like the, I value my work time pretty highly now because it's constrained. Um, I can't, you know, I'm kind of making an exception over the last week recording this new series of interviews where I'm uh, working later than normal and spending more time kind of extracurricularly editing than normal. But, you know, for the most part, we try to treat our work time as like, well, I like this, like if I'm in, if I'm in here, I'm not out there being a dad. As a, like that's a way bigger trade-off than I used to have because it used to be if I'm in here working I'm not out there watching Seinfeld or something which is like not as big of <laughs> a trade-off a good show but yeah no legitimately legitimately quality show but it's 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 a really different trade-off for me you know knowing that the thing we're working on is something that I think is going to make the game better period and in doing so hopefully you know, make it more likely to be something that will kind of help support us as a family, that would be cool. Those are things that seem pretty relevant uh, yeah. to us lately. But, I mean, the other thing is, like, we have, way, we have way, way, way too much crap going on at the same time. And if I, if it was, if I had a choice between should we be at very, at almost the same point in two very big projects at the same time, I would like prefer to not be there. <laughs> there are aspects of that that are not ideal. Um, but yeah. if I had to choose between just dropping one of the projects entirely and knowing, like being able to look back in a couple of years, be able to look back on this period of development, which is like, frankly, frequently uncomfortable, but know that we got both of these the, the two, the Overland is our sort of internal project and Night in the Woods is our big external publishing project. And they're both really important to me. I think they're doing, I think they're really special. And Are they going to release at the same time then if they're in the same production? Not, not at the exact right same time, but a lot closer together than would be, having them be a little more staggered would go a long way toward addressing a lot of our, uh, a lot of our scheduling issues right now. I don't know. That's a little bit of a rambly answer. But um, the short version is, you know, we we did a bunch of things. We moved from Austin to Michigan to get closer to family, like picked up and left the Jesus. town where we had our whole professional life and all of our friends. Well, kids' friends, too, right? How did you handle that? We are kind of sneaking in. They're just about to start kindergarten, so... We didn't have any. Uh, really... Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. So we had... Yeah. In Japan, in Japan, you start kindergarten at three. So we're already. Oh, already, already locked, locked down. In. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, we that was that was part of the decision. Like we didn't have to leave Austin right away, but we had to do some kind of kid math on top of everything else. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. why not? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so uh, does your your wife work full time too on on the Finji and the game and stuff? Uh, she logs a lot of hours um, right now because I'm the programmer on Overland. I'm spending a lot more time in the studio than she is, and she's spending a lot more time with our kids than I am. Yeah. Uh, which is definitely a strain on both of us because we think of ourselves as being relatively progressive and forward thinking about gender roles within the family and all that stuff. But yeah. um, there's still, there's a thing where if I, if she sort of takes one for the team and is the default parent and I sit in my chair and like press on the keyboard and mouse a lot, like the odds that we will have a more successful company for our work history and for where we're at and for the game market that we're looking at, like the odds are better. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. It's can. tough. I find it hard too, because I love to work. You know, yeah. when, when things are going well, I fucking love working and you know, my wife loves the kids of course too, but that's some stressful shit right there. Taking care of kids, especially <laughs> during the summer, you know, all the time. So yeah, I have, just for my own personal guilt, I don't like to work that much, you know, just outside of recognizing that a good dad is going to spend more time with his, as much time as he can as possible with his kids. Just like I feel guilty, you know, that I'm, yeah. I'm able to work so much. I mean, not to get too whatever, but like the idea of having like a family deadline of collaborating with your partner and saying like, I want to do this crazy thing. I can, I'm going to try to have it done in six months. Yeah. Um, and, you know, having kind of buy-in. <laughs> from your whole like house team and saying like, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's do this dumb thing. It sounds, it might be dumb, but like we can give it a try. Uh, and maybe, maybe something cool will happen and we, you know, we can recognize the, the emotional and, you know, potentially, you know, business upsides of it at some point. Um, yeah. and a, a lot of where we're at now is just that, like we we're on a countdown. We know it's going to be less than 12 months now before like the lion's share of our work on everything that we're committed to right now will be done. So we can see kind of the horizon over there, but it's like, <laughs> we're not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. We kind of have the same setup where it's, it's a buy-in sort of thing. It's a good word for it. But basically I say like, okay, I need crunch. I need to, to finish this game. I need X months of crunch. And then we sort of work out, okay, that's fine. Uh, but I need a break at this point. Like she tells me, okay, we need to split it up. So you, it's sort of, almost like a producer, like a family producer kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's going to work. You know, that, that works out, I think, when in the end you can look back and say it worked out. But I think it's dangerous because you, the game could suck in the end, and then you realize, you know, what you paid for, for this, which is not worth it, you know? So I'm, that's also more pressure, I guess, just on when you're making the game. Yeah, and I think it's... Uh... For us, it's been uh, it's a lot of pressure on picking, uh, on doing basically mechanical first game design or mechanics first design in general. Uh, if we're doing exploratory or experimental work, if we're not, um, we haven't made any sequels to things before. We tend to we made action games and puzzle games and all sorts of weird stuff, and it feels like. It, uh, when my wife and I do work together on a design, that design is almost always narrative heavy. 
and it's yeah. about a story and it's about um, a place and that feels so risky because the odds yeah. that that project might not come together until the 11th hour seem fair. I don't know how to prototype that in a way that, that gives me a lot of confidence <laughs> that it's yeah. going to pan out. And where I do have confidence in other things, like we haven't solved every single game design problem in Overland, but the problems are of the type that we have solved before. Mm-hmm. And I have, you know, grammar for the that space and... So, yeah, I don't know. I feel like, it, in a way, <laughs> it's it's totally insane. But the the fact that we have kids means that right now we're shipping me- game mechanic-heavy games. That's a thing. That's a dynamic that we uh, have in our household right now, which is uh, a little weird. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, there's so many things that can influence game design and work in general, you know? It's... Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say anything. It's any one thing is better or worse than the next. Yeah, yeah. No, and I'm, I'm, and I should clarify that, like the the people that we're working with right now, and the game that we're getting to work on is the coolest, is the best thing that I've ever gotten to be involved with. So, like, our schedule being a disaster is unfortunate, and it is a <laughs> frequent source of stress. But like, we're not. We're not doing it trivially. We're doing it because we've been doing this since about 2006, and this is by far the coolest stuff that we've gotten to anywhere within an arm's length of. So I don't know. That's the place where I always feel like I struggle when when we're talking to anybody about, like, work-life balance and, you know, uh, taking care of yourself and self-care and this whole topic and how important it is to to try to be creatively satisfied but to try to be there for your family in a way that they will remember you know kind of forever to kind of juggle uh, or balance all of these plates at the same time i don't know i think we found a special thing and it feels weird to it feels almost as weird to shortchange that as it does to like I don't know. I don't mind. We haven't. I'm. I'm really, really behind on our Netflix right now, and I'm totally <laughs> fine with it. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of chaff that you can cut off, but what I found when you have kids and when you have work and stuff, there's a lot of chaff to get rid of. But I've found that it's still hard, and I, I still need to say, okay, I'm crunching and just be kind of a bad dad but my plan is actually that after this game to take a long break and that's kind of what i've been promising is that uh you you know with the success of papers please was pretty good it wasn't amazing but it was good and i i don't even need to make another game for another couple years so Mm. i feel super lucky to be in a situation but you know there's still a lot of pressure on me professionally to do something Mm -hmm. but it means that after this game i can sort of make promises about I'm still going to work on stuff, but it's not going to be like like it is now, you know. So hopefully that works out because counting on it. <laughs> yeah, same here. Same here. <laughs> uh, I think that I have to go to bed because we are practicing our new earlier wake up time in anticipation of kindergarten starting in two weeks. Right, that's what I did today. Okay, all right, cool. Well, <laughs> had a great time. Um, thank you so much, man. This was, this was marvelous. Thank you for letting me just pick your brain and ask you weird questions about quake mods and stuff.
Yeah, um, no worries. My pleasure. And good luck with sorting out the new thing, the new big experiment. And with how many kids do you have? Two. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, point. good luck with the circus, man. Yeah, thanks. You too. <laughs> Thank you.